Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with Octavia Bright, who is taking a very short break from her impending thesis. Thank you, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing? Oh my god. <laughs> I'm a bit... I'm, I'm okay. I'm, you seem... It's nice to be out of my study. Yeah. You... We've been chatting before the show and you seem like a little more energetic than usual, if that's possible. Yeah. Excited to see people? Yeah. Possibly? Yeah. Like a jailbreak situation. Okay, good. Well, hopefully <laughs> that leads to interesting fodder in our oh chat. I, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Um, on this month's show, we have a really excellent guest. So do you want to introduce her? Yes, definitely. Um, Sarah Baum was born in 1984 in Lancashire, England, and she studied fine art before earning a master's in creative writing. And uh, her short fiction has appeared in lots of great places, including The Moth, The Stinging Fly, The Irish Independent, um, and a bunch of others. And her first novel, Spill, Simmer, Falter, Wither, has won and been shortlisted for a whole bunch of prizes, including winning the Jeffrey Faber Memorial Prize for Fiction. So she's, uh, she's doing very well. Um, and she lives in Cork with her two dogs. Well done, Sarah. And she was a delight. <laughs> she was a delight. Um, so Sarah's second novel, A Line Made by Walking, which was published on the 16th of February this month, is infused with art. The story of Frankie, who retreats to her dead grandmother's urban bungalow, it is not only filled with descriptions of contemporary art pieces, including A Line Made by Walking, which is contemporary art, um, but it features a number of photographs of dead animals integrated into the text. So we thought um, today, for our theme, we would talk about illustrated novels. Um, in the 19th century, novels were almost always accompanied by some kind of illustrations. Dickens illustrators, Cruikshank and Fizz even became famous in their own right. Is it because they have the best names ever? Yeah. Cruikshank <laughs> and Fizz. Fizz, Fizz a was, yeah, Fizz was a pen name to go with Boz. And I can't remember, I think his last name was originally Brown, so it's not oh, quite as exciting. disappointing. Yeah, but Crookshank was actually his last Crookshank name. Crookshank and Fizz, they sound like a couple from Harry Potter or yeah, something. It, they are kind of Dickensian, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, totally. Mm, yes. And yet, today, almost all novels are devoid of pictures, with a few notable exceptions, including the novels of W.C. W.G., rather, Zabald. I'd never know how to pronounce that. You freestyle it, baby. Okay. Woo! And Douglas <laughs> Coupland? Copeland? Who knows? <laughs> Who cares? Um, what do illustrations add to a novel? And should a case be made for bringing them back? As usual, we're interviewing Sarah, take, talking about the theme and giving some book recommendations. So stay tuned. Sarah Baum, welcome to Literary Friction. Thanks so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. So I wanted to start by just asking you about the process of this book. Um, you've said that it grew out of a creative nonfiction project that you wrote about your experience of living in your recently deceased grandmother's bungalow. And that is um, what the character in this book is doing, Frankie. So at what point did you realize that it was turning into fiction? Um, yeah, it's funny. It also sort of grew out of the animal photographs because it's structured around... Robin, Rabbit, Rat, Rook. Um, each chapter is named for an animal. Um, and they, I suppose, came first, but that was uh, a, just a series of photographs I was taking due to morbid fascination. <laughs> um, and uh, and then the year, it was, a, it was a couple of years after my grandmother had died, and that element of it is, is completely true. Um, I spent a summer, I think it was a summer, it's funny how, like, events are now jumbled in my head. I can't actually remember the true version. I remember very little about actually staying there in my grandmother's house, but I, because I fictionalized it. So it was then that I started writing. My grandmother was um, a big reader and her house was full of books, full of the old like paperback penguins, you know, with the orange cover. 
Anna. And I love that, those. Yeah, yeah. And everyone, most of the, all the valuable books have been kind of taken by family, you know. And uh, the books that, that uh, I, still a fascinating array of books, um, which I think is mentioned somewhere in, in my own. And so I was reading a lot and it was, it was another good few years. No, it was about a year after I, I did my master's and I'm, a part a module for my master's was called creative nonfiction and I wrote an essay that sort of brought in quotes from the books and the animals and just the strange the sort of loneliness of um, it was that certain phase of my life it was kind of the loneliness of failure I was really like you know mid-20s unemployed living in my grandmother's empty house um, but it but again it and I got a really good reception the essay but it was only maybe probably not even 5,000 words long. And it got put away for a long time. And then it was only after finishing my first, which I actually finished in 2000, the end of 2013, you know, because there's this massive gap always between books actually coming out. And didn't imagine that Spill Simmer would ever get published. And I thought, I thought, well, I can, I can write a novel. That was my practice novel. And now I'll write a real novel. And I went back to, I actually tried, tried writing something else. And then this kept niggling at me. I was like, I kind of have to this one is the one that's demanding to be written, whereas the other one is just kind of going, that sounds like a second novel, so write that. And um, did you, that feeling of it demanding to be written, is that a useful feeling or is it a stressful feeling? Or is that what sort of gets you going? Yeah, well, I think I think one needs that. Like, um, you have to be obsessed with something in order for it to, to be any good I think it's uh the other novel that I'd started was um was very like novel shaped and it had several different characters and their lives sort of interwove I think there was even a murder which is very unlike me <laughs> and probably animals or maybe I, I probably stared away from animals because um I want to be just that person who writes about dogs and dead things but um um, and I got to maybe about 30,000 words and then I just lost interest. I was like, this is not, for me, it, I, I have to kind of care about the voice. I have to be absorbed by the voice. And um, I just, it wasn't that I didn't think, I, I still think that was maybe a more marketable book, um, but I just didn't think I could sustain interest in it for years. These things kind of taper on for years. Um, so yeah, it, so it was kind of, it was a very personal decision in a way. It wasn't strategic. It was just, this is the one that I can face every morning for the next year and a half. Or. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I wonder if you could talk a bit about the presence of artworks in the book, because it's one of the things I found the most engaging, the way that Frankie um, relates to these pieces of work that she's memorized or that she has in her memory. Um, yeah. And how did that sort of conceit come to you and, and how do you relate to it yourself? I gosh I can't actually remember when it came in because it wasn't there in the original essay that I wrote um I, in the original essay actually I had quotes from the books that I was reading and I thought no that's horribly pretentious in like literary fiction it's kind of like a way of going you know I'm really well read look I read this and I read that and uh and then I realized that, of course, Frankie was an art student trying to be a struggling artist, well, struggling to be an artist, <laughs> not trying to be a struggling artist. And, um, and, she, and, and so she's trying to find meaning for her life in a way, in the only way that she knows how. Um, she's learned about all of these artworks because it's this thing that she's been devoting her life to um, uh, for several years. And, and, and now she's lost and lonely and the only way she knows how to find meaning is by um, exploring the artworks that she knows. She's also afraid to, um, afraid that 
once her formal education has ended, which it then has, it's that kind of floaty feeling of suddenly not being in college, not being in school, and she's afraid that she'll stop learning, uh, that she'll forget the things she's learned, um, and so she, and so she's testing herself, and so each each little piece can, begins. I test myself. Works about whatever. Works about signage, about falling, about flight, um, and there were many more actually in the longer draft, and I was. I don't think I was really advised to take them out, but um, some of them were more tag tagged on. You know, it was kind of like, oh, that's a great artwork. I'll hammer that in here. And that was transparent when I stood back. You know, it was like, unless I came to them naturally, they shouldn't have been there. It really made me think about the relationship between contemporary and modern art and the life that we live, because I think there's a perception that those things don't have a lot to do with each other. Um, and even if it's sort of performance art happening out in the world, it's very separate from what most of us experience. But I think what Frankie is very good at is finding themes and things that she experiences in her life and tying it to, to really quite poignant uh, works of art that say something about like birds or flying or falling or yeah. walking. Um, yeah. And I thought that was really powerful. Yeah, I've been quite careful because in the final draft of, uh, of the book, um, I don't know if it went in the the proof. Um, I have like an author's note at the end which advises people to search out the artworks themselves because I'm very conscious that like uh, I'm uh, they're being described, but they're being described through Frankie's frame of reference, and the artist may look at it and go, "That's not what I meant." <laughs> um, and Richard Long, I'm terrified of the. The yeah, which is the, the title of the, the title book. of the book, and I was like, we can't call it that. Richard Long will be angry, and they were like, you just no copyright on titles, so you can. But I'm still terrified of the fact that like he'll be pissed. Oh, I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm sure he'll be flattered. You flattered. Well, that's it. into like a different piece of art. I think. I think if it was me, I would be glad that like the my work was of continued relevance. Right, and on for an on. artist like Richard Long, which is all about time and evolution and change and things like that, I'm sure he'd be thrilled. Let's say he's thrilled. <laughs> Can you describe the uh, a line made by walking piece? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it was made in 1967, and it was while I think he was still a student in St. Martin's College of Art. And um, as I understand it, he took a train outside of London I don't know, you probably didn't have to go so far outside of London to find a field back then as you do now. Um, so I don't know exactly where the field was, but he, he got to a field and walked, um, found a stretch of grass and walked up and down and up and down and up and down in a straight line um, until a, a, pa a pathway had been worn through the grass and, uh, and then took photographs of it, I think possibly not even that many. And the piece, or perhaps the documentation of the piece, was called A Line Made by Walking. And um, it kind of laid the foundation of a lot of conceptual art that came after. Um, and his works then, I've, I've seen his work in, in Ireland quite a few times, possibly over, um, also over here. Um, and it continues that just really simple nature, it, you know, it sort of comes from nature, but then he makes this little um, sort of imposition on nature as possible. And uh, but I think for Frankie and why I liked it so much as, as a title is it's it's about pointlessness and repetition and going nowhere, working hard, but getting nowhere. <laughs> I imagine it must be hard to write a novel about going nowhere, which is essentially what Frankie does. She stays in a house um, mm -hmm. and she's I, I don't I don't know if you would define her state as depressed, but 
depression is so much about stasis and it's mm -hmm. so much about being stuck. Um, how do you create sort of drama and narrative out of that? Because I think you have done that. <laughs> yeah, this is one of these like, I, I don't believe that I have, but <laughs> it's, it's wonderful when other people read it. I'd, I'd been told by the American publishers, they were like, this is a harder sell. Um, and I wholly believe that, that nothing really happens. Um, and yet, uh, and yet people who've read it since have been like, it's actually much more readable than, than the other one, which, which I find baffling. But I think structurally there's lots of little breaks and um, it's so much for me. I was very interested in how a mind wonders and sort of the things it alights upon. And, uh, you know, being in the arts myself, I've had to, um, or Chris Krauss talks about this. Um, at we had her on the show. Did you? Yeah, no way. Yeah. We're big fans. <laughs> well, maybe, like, I don't know where she talked about this. This is something I read about um, structuring unstructured time, something like that. You know, that's the hardest thing if you want to be an artist or a writer or whatever. It's being alone with your own brain. No one telling you you're great. No one telling you that this will amount to anything. And, uh, and trying, trying to do something nonetheless and to believe in it and make it worthwhile. And I suppose that's, that's what Frankie is struggling against all the time. And, um, and I think, you know, uh, people would say she's depressed and other people would say that she's lost. I, I didn't want to, you know, it's not a polemic in any way. I think possibly there'll be conversations about mental illness, but, um, but for me, it was just, it, you know, I, I didn't, makes pass any judgment on her either in a way um well she started as me when I stood back you know she was no longer me or towards editing towards the end I was like there were so many things about her that infuriated me and I realized that I was actually being infuriated by my 25 year old self in a way um you know and I had to allow Frankie to be that um or a version of that that's one of the things I enjoyed the most actually was that she's a she's an incredibly um richly drawn figure in that you see her be a complete bitch sometimes as well, in that way mm. that when you're in that position of, well, it's so much fear, isn't it, in your, in your mid-twenties when you're trying to work mm. out yeah, who you are, what you, what you want to give with your life, what you want to do. Mm. Um, I love that there's a scene where she seeks some help, essentially, for her mental health to please her mother, mm. and she comes across that doctor, and she is really unpleasant to this woman and has this moment where she comes away from it and thinks, God, was I just racist? Yeah, yeah. And I thought, it was, I thought it was brilliant because, yeah, you weren't passing judgment on your character in any way. Um, and I'm pleased to hear that you were infuriated by her as well because that was a big part of the experience of reading her and kind of loving her anyway and wanting to see where she went and wanting to follow her, um, her line of, of walking, I guess. Um, I wonder, I wanted to ask you more about the, the photographs of animals that you took and what made you want to include them in the book because it's quite unusual to have images included in text in that way. Yeah, and it's kind of risky, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I pitched it to, like, the book's been... Can you, sorry, a good few years. They were actually... start again, sorry. <laughs> okay. okay, no, you can go. The pictures uh, came up, came together over a good few years, um, not just a summer. That would have been sort of a strange coincidence, all of these animals. But obviously in fiction, it, um, it, it's better if it all happened in a summer. Um, and they were actually shown originally as in an exhibition in an abandoned orphanage in Poland, in Western Poland. Um, and I carved little birds. It was kind of a play on, you know, um, Joseph Kusch, I can never say his surname. And he had like um, a piece of art called One in Three Chairs. And there was a picture of a chair, the chair, and the definition of the chair um, conceptual art it's, it was kind of an early piece of conceptual art and it was like you know what is a thing is the thing the image is the thing the definition of the thing so anyway in my um, 
as an ode to that, I suppose the piece was like a little dead animal on a shelf in not a real dead animal carved in balsa wood. And then there was the photos of the animal and then there was kind of too many elements. I always made sculptures with too many confusing elements. Um, and then with um, with the novel, I kind of the pictures were there and I'm a big fan of like W.G. Sebald. I think the way he used stray photographs, found photographs, and they were always a little bit crappy and they sort of appeared in the text with no explanation. And um and but again, I was wary of like, you know, pretentiously referencing other people. Ben Lerner is someone else who puts um, very nicely integrates images into his text. I actually wrote an essay on it in college, I think, images going in. And so um, and so I uh, but again, it's it's up to publishers. You know, they're the ones who package the books. And what's interesting is that in the US, they're not using the images at all. And for the Irish edition, they're using them as um, title pages. And what my my desire was um, what the UK are doing, what Heinemann are doing, um, was to have the pictures appear as the animal is found. So it's 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 kind of a bit random. Um, but but yeah, I, I'm slightly wary. Some of them are being changed because landscape portrait, things like that. Um, and I'm I'm wary of that, but I'm glad they're going in. That was my call. Did you want to play around a bit with the border between fiction and um reality because of course pictures have to be taken in the world they have to exist mm -hmm. and to have these photographs that Frankie the character has taken upsets that a bit doesn't it I and I think it it does sort of draw people's attention to you as the author as somebody who's created the book in the first place yeah yeah I like that kind of you know coming across something in a book and kind of and going oh well how come there's a real if it's fiction then it's yeah so I mean I've I've done that without unwittingly <laughs> um, drawn attention to to my own story and I mean I've said it it, def it, it draws heavily from my own um, my own experience in that house what if for years it was in a folder on my desktop called quarter life crisis <laughs> <laughs> and then I started which I thought was a great term um, but then I I mean it's it's a used term I certainly didn't pioneer it I started using uh, hearing other people use it and I, it's because we're of a generation where I think we grow up slower, or I definitely grew up slower. Um, whereas my, you know, my parents were married and, and having kids at my age, um, and so I, I, and and I mean I'm okay. I'm okay about talking about about that. Um, but I'd be keen to highlight that a lot of the a lot of the details around it are made up. You know, peop the people aren't really people, um, aren't real people, or aren't all real people, or versions of real people. You know, um, the uh, I, the location will be confused because there's a wind turbine, a very prominent wind turbine alongside the bungalow, um, but there is no wind turbine. So <laughs> people are going to be like, where is that turbine? Um, I'm going to go on a turbine hunt <laughs> inspired by this novel. Um, the other thing that I think you write about really perceptively and beautiful is just the natural world. And mm -hmm. that's true of, of your previous book, mm -hmm. Spill, Simmer, Falter, Wither. I got that right, right? <laughs> I always... Yes, yeah, so do I. <laughs> wrangle it in my mouth. I mean, it's so... I, actually, that just that title is so evocative. But um, can you talk a bit about your relationship to the natural world and did it creep into your literature? Did, did it, was it something that you always wanted to write about? Um, no, because curiously enough, um, I was a kid who grew up in the countryside um, and then moved, as as many people do, moved to Dublin then for college. I was dying to get away from, from the parental home and, um, and the countryside when I turned 18, 19 and then lived for seven years in Dublin between art school and then working, worked in galleries <laughs> um, and such and then moved back due to 
much like in London, really high rents in Dublin. Um, I moved back with my boyfriend, who's an artist, to um, uh, to sort of rural East Cork, and it was, and we were both on the dole. This was like the recession. It was a funny time in Ireland, um, where people who were highly qualified had no job prospects so you were in the dole queue with everyone from you know construction workers to you know IT specialists to doctors and um, so there's no particular shame in not having a job and no particular opportunities anyway and uh, and I we adopted this rescue dog and then my boyfriend got a job and I was spending many hours alone with the rescue dog and uh, and it was I hadn't I hadn't really gone home in search of countryside but um we'd both he does a lot of fishing so we'd wanted to live by the sea and and also largely because when you're when you walk a dog you're not getting any exercise you know you're sort of stopping and you're looking at things and you're um and it was it for me it was a real sort of journey of discovery back into the natural world and it was kind of sad because I realized that I'd known like the names of of trees and flowers and beetles and stuff when I was a kid and known their names in Irish and as I and I'd forgotten all that you know that several years that I'd been off getting formal education um, I'd forgotten these little things that suddenly seemed relevant Um, and so the spill simmer was much more a sort of journey of discovery back into that and without even realizing I suppose how relevant it it became to to line to the second novel um, that Frankie is sort of stranded in in nature and in the countryside and because she feels as though her life is ending in a way um she she picks up on these dead things she notices notices them as well and there's a lot of like there's a lot of nature living in in the novel as well but for me that was kind of an important trend when when she feels good things are are leafing and blooming and teeming and when she feels bad the animals fall out of the sky and die at her feet (laughs) yeah there's a lot of death um and all of the pictures are of dead animals and they're very um forensic in a way i kept thinking about the shots of dead bodies taken by yeah with um, the lines. Yeah, yeah um and and you have one really evocative one with uh the tongue is sticking out of a rat yeah it's quite disgusting but at the but same also, time i wanted them to be kind of yeah. a tribute to the animal you know um uh and frankie has certain rules that i think i sort of had she can't kill an animal herself in order to photograph it <laughs> and she can't photograph something that's still in in the process of dying and one of them, I remember the rook um, in, in the book. And again, this was my, my own experience, um, not not in exactly the same way, but the, when I found it, it was still alive. And I remember thinking, I can't photograph if, if it's still alive and going away and coming back and, and watching it dying. Like in retrospect, I should have killed it or something. Um, and that again, Frankie sits in the car and, and waits for this rook to die in the rain so that she can take the photograph of it. Um, but for me, it was kind of a mark of respect in some way. I got that. I don't know why I said they were disgusting because, but but they're. I think they're playing with that, um, that beauty and disgustingness and ugliness are actually much closer than than you would think. And death is so wrapped up, especially when we're talking about art. Yeah. Um. It's, su- it's such an essential part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And in some cases, the hair is the worst one because its intestine has been split, <laughs> and like its own its own bowel is sort of in its eye. But even that was kind of you know for Frankie it means this is like the shit in the eye of death that comes to us all. You know. Um. So there's kind of a message even in the disgusting ones that it's useful in some way. <laughs> yes. Death is useful. Um, Well, Sarah, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And um, the book is called A Line Made by Walking, and it is out in March, Uh, February. February 23rd. And it is out in February. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) 
Okay, this is Literary Friction. We're back, Carrie and Octavia, to talk about the theme today, which is illustrated novels. So illustrated novels um, used to be the norm, as I learned when I researched Wikipedia. No, I did more research than that. <laughs> you I did read the Wikipedia article. Do Wikipedia. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, we, as we said in the intro, Dickens illustrators were famous in their own right. William Makepeace Thackeray illustrated his own novels. And during the 19th century especially, uh, it was expected that novels would be illustrated and that illustrations would enhance the text. Um, but novels are really never illustrated today. No, it's really rare, isn't it? I guess yeah. we have television now. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that. Um, <laughs> I mean, and and another an interesting dimension of that, especially as somebody who works in publishing, is um, illustrations are not only considered something that you would only ever do if it was necessary, um, but also the kind of tacky. Yeah, um, like I, having pictures of food on a menu. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's seen as sort of lower class and I've I not lower class but you go <laughs> but I mean lower class in the in the sense of like genre lowbrow low no, low yeah yeah um and I've heard editors say to authors you know readers don't want illustrations yeah it's funny people became snobbish well it's considered childish isn't it it's like it's ch- children read books with pictures and adults read infinite jest and that's <laughs> what happens mm. I was thinking about William Blake um who I love and who people will know for his amazing illustrations that go with his poetry that he painted and um, did himself. But what I think people often don't know is that he actually learned earned a living um, from illustrating other people's books because he um, he was trained as an engraver and he was at the Royal Academy and he was kind of a gun for hire. Uh, and he, you could hire him and he'd come and illustrate your novel. And so he illustrated Don Quixote and a few other kind yeah. of massive fuck off big old novels um and that beautiful i mean he's a beautiful artist but it's just it's interesting that that was his kind of metier yeah and it was it it was something that you could say that you did for a living right yeah unless you're a children's book illustrator which is a completely different thing it's a big old thing um today i i think we're mainly talking about adult novels i should also mention that i did i decided that we shouldn't talk about graphic novels because we've already discussed them on the show and that is a whole a whole other thing. Other it kettle, whole kettle other of thing. fish, as the Brits would say. <laughs> is that what you say? Yeah, you know okay. what else we say? Um, like, adult novel makes it sound like it's porn. Oh, yeah. We say that in America, too. <laughs> <laughs> what, is, there a different, is there a different way to say it? Porn books with Yeah, because, because porn books would have a lot of pictures. I mean, you would hope so. Okay, we're sort of getting on a tangent here. So, Octavia. Yes, Carrie. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> you have my full attention. Do you, do you think we should illustrate novels? I, I'm not pro or against. I think it should never be like a par for the course situation. I think that the text needs to tell you whether it needs to be illustrated or not, you know, like allow the text to speak to you and tell you what it needs for it to best be served, you know? So I was thinking of Kurt Vonnegut, who I actually never read when I was a teenager, um, but a friend of mine is a huge fan and she gave me one of his books a couple of years ago, which is the first time I really kind of came up against him. You know, he has had doodles, his doodles and stuff in. And I have to say, I was shocked at myself. But when I opened it, I felt a bit disappointed that they were, like, it made me feel infantilized in some way. And actually, then I got into reading it and loved it and thought it was great. And it totally makes sense with what he's doing and all this kind of stuff. Um, I do, so I do think that illustrations in books, they have a, 
a hard task before them because we've become so used to not having like heavy duty literature illustrated, I guess, as part of it, isn't it? It's about, like you were saying, highbrow, lowbrow. Um, but then there are books that, you know, I've seen an illustrated uh, version of Moby Dick, which was a beautiful thing. The Master of Margarita, which is one of my favorite books, as I always say, um, there are some wonderful illustrated versions of that. Salvador Dali did some amazing illustrations for a really famous novel, and obviously I've forgotten what it was. Jean Cocteau, um, mm. you know, like, yeah. Well, it's interesting to think about why illustrations have fallen out of fashion. I think one of the reasons, as you say, is that it seems infantilizing now, partially because they've become the realm of the of the children's book. Um, it's also because around the turn of the century, when people like Henry James and Virginia Woolf were writing novels that were mainly about the human mind mm, and true. stream of consciousness and the way that humans were eternally, internally, you know, illustrations, it, there's no point in um, having a picture of Mrs. Dalloway. Yeah. Because that's not what that novel is about. It's not about her visage. It's, yeah. It's about what's going on in her head. And actually, James and Virginia Woolf were both very skeptical of illustrations, partially because of, and I'm parroting this from a number of articles I've read, so, um, yeah, quotes, <laughs> quote the New Yorker or something, <laughs> bibliography. Um, Don't um, say that word in my presence at the moment. <laughs> um uh what was i going to say oh yes so the the moving image became to be a, you know replace books as the choice of the masses yeah in in terms of entertainment and i think novelists sort of had to stake their ground and they saw images and imagery as a sort of sumptuous surface level thing um as opposed to the richness of the mind which could be depicted through words and i think that's never really gone away and i think some of that snobbishness about illustrations has to do with that yeah i think so too and it's to do with you know whether you want to tell your readers what to think beyond a certain point as well and like you were saying that the whole novels that are internal exploration you know, the, the point is that there is so much left open for your reader's imagination to make into this shape or that shape or whatever. Um, and then you put images in it and you fix, you basically fix something down to reality mm. in a way that maybe isn't um, very generous, yeah. you know, to which still Which is funny because it still happens with films that are made out of movies. Absolutely. And you know what I hate? I like hate with a burning, angry passion when um, a movie's made from a book and then they reissue the book with a photograph of the actors on the cover. Yeah. I hate it. I think it's really ethically dubious. We call that the film tie-in. In oh my God. <laughs> oh, I hate it. Um, I think it's... Oh, I think it's an awful, terrible thing to do. I saw a copy of Brideshead um, revisited with a picture of Jeremy Irons on the front. And I love, I love the dramatisation of Brideshead revisited. I think it's one of the... It's an example of, of that going really well for a story and for a book. But I just, I, I disagree with the moulding together of those two different ways of interpreting a story. And I find it more offensive than, I mean, I was thinking, I'm, I know we're going to talk about cover art in a minute, but, you know, the, you often get with 19th century novels, editions that will print them with a painting from around the same time, not necessarily of the character, but like a Renoir on the front of, I don't know, Mrs. Dalloway or whatever for example which is which is dubious also I think because you're making connections between art forms that uh, it's going to direct somebody's thinking as well 
but the but the this photograph the photographic still from the movie on the book it just I think it makes too apparent to me the really uncomfortable like commercial side yeah. of publishing. Do you think also. there's anyone who actually likes film tie-in editions? Who's like, yeah. oh yeah, great. Like, I think people. This my this is my theory. I think if you come to a story via the film first, then the book tie-in edition is speaking to you. Like you know, you uh, Emma Jane Austen, whatever. And you see Gwyneth Paltrow on the cover because you just recently, you're like, oh my God, I love that movie. I'm going to read the book. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, it's a sort of dirty secret. It books, the influence of films and the influence of books today, films just reach way more people. And it's a dirty secret in the industry that mm. the, the golden chalice, is that an expression? Yes, babe. Oh, okay. Great. <laughs> <laughs> is, um... Is getting your book made into a film because you'll yeah. sell you'll, you'll sell, sell way more, more copies and yeah, you'll probably yeah. go on the bestseller list. Yeah, um, and the profile just rises. yeah, and and so people come to books as you say quite often through films by the movie. Um, I can't remember who it was, but one of my friend's brothers collects bad film tie-in <laughs> copies of like classic films, which I think is so great. I, and I wish I could remember. Oh who man, it was. people are so weird. Yeah, people are weird. But um, let's talk about authors today who we think use illustrations well. I mean, as we said, there aren't many who do it. Um, the one that always comes to mind and who came up in our interview with Sarah was um, W. G. Sebald, um, who sort of further complicates things by using photographs um, and quite badly reproduced photographs. They're kind of sketchy that's and fading the, from view. That's the interesting, that's the, yeah. that's the thing. That's the big question, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, I, as someone who in college loved to like write papers about the interaction between um, the visual arts and books, um, was always really interested in Sebald. And you know, I, what I always liked, and I think I brought this up in the interview as well, was that the photographs sort of play with our perception of, of what is fiction and what is reality, because a photograph has to be taken in the world. Mm. But the way that the photographs are sort of crappy in those books also sort of adds an extra layer of, you know, what, what can be taken at face value here. Right, exactly. And obviously, the kind of books where you would always find photographs would be memoir and biography. So it creates an interesting tie-in with that. Mm. I mean, I remember when I was a child, my parents, I mean, they have so many books, and I used to, like, poor, sad, only child, bored and alone, would pull down the books from the from the bookshelves. And, you know, there was a certain size in the 80s of, like, the big political biography, I guess. It was like a hardback book, and you could pull it out, and you'd see from looking at its pages that it would have this shiny paper in the middle and I'd always take it off the shelf and open straight to the photographic pull out in the middle which would all be printed on like magazine style paper and just look at these shiny photographs of all these politicians or actors or whoever it was and they they held this kind of mad mystery for me because it was this difference between the children's books that I had which were illustrated that were painted and you know all that kind of stuff and these very serious books that grown-up books that my parents read and then these ones that were in the middle that had all these glossy pictures inside and I would just stare at the pictures and be like, oh my God, what is the story of this thing? Yeah. And then, you know, it would be taken out of my hands. It's funny because I find colour plates really tacky. Do you? I yeah. know I have such a fondness for them. I really do. I love them because I just, I think it's, 
because also the textural change of the paper, like everything about it, it's a real statement. But I, but I think that, and having also published some work academically that needed illustrations and learning about the ball ache that is copyright and mm-hmm. all that fucking bullshit that basically means that you're, if you're having images included in a text, you're going to have to compromise a lot of the ones that you are allowed to have for whatever reason. Um, it's a it's a complicated thing, but I think that what Sebalt is doing is an it's like creating an interesting bridge between those things where yeah, like you say, like the the quality of the image printed just in black and white on the you know pulpy paper um, is something that if you're coming at a book with a certain perception of what you should be getting if you're getting images, it's going to probably piss you off a bit. You know, it's mm. like why does this look so shitty? Um, also, I know we've talked about John Berger a lot um, recently, especially rest in power um dear man but his book ways of seeing is a really great example of like an an illustrated book that is lo-fi in its imagery production deliberately because it's talking about the questionable nature of reproducing images of art anyway um and it has this brilliant sort of dialogue that it's it creates within its pages with that um yeah, and there's plenty of nonfiction that has great illustrations. Wonderful you know, illustrations, Not yeah. just maps and charts and graphs and photographs, but line drawings and, yeah. you know, I think in, in some ways nonfiction gives you a little more scope for that, whereas, totally. whereas very few people do it in novels. Well, this is the big question, isn't it? Because in nonfiction, there's no ethical question around doing it because it's nonfiction. So you're talking about tangible uh, people, situations, pieces of work, whatever, that your it's exposition rather than telling somebody what they should think but like I remember you know Harry Potter when it first came out was a slip of a girl and I hated the illustration on the front of that first Harry Potter book because in my head that's not how he and Ron looked in any way I never have that problem I think I must be like I just don't imagine things in my head when I read them what do you I don't mean? Know what, I, just, <laughs> I just don't really have I just don't really have pictures have in image. my mind. That's so fascinating to me. I think of sort of like blobs. <laughs> Carrie, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't admit that. But no, I just, do. Let, when I people wanna, get upset about things not looking the way they thought they would look, I never have a clear picture in my mind of what somebody so looks like from a novel. And I never have cl- clear pictures of settings. Nothing. No. I, I never remember physical traits about people unless somebody like J.K. Rowling sort of bangs it over my head numerous times. But yeah. like Ron is sort of like a like a sort of redheaded blob to me. <laughs> That is, you've just blown my tiny mind. I don't know. I just no. never, it's so unimportant to me what things look like. I have a very visual imagination. So when I read, I'm like, it's, it's, but it's sensual. It smells and touch and feelings. Like I get a, a sense of a character's physicality very much, very, mm. very much, which is why I get upset when I see them drawn yeah. and they're so maybe I need illustrations. Than, maybe you need telling what to think. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fascinating though, because that is like, that's a big, uh, I've lost the word I'm trying to find. Um, that changes things though. If you're, if you're thinking about it from the perspective of a writer who, like Sarah, decides that they want to I- incorporate images in the text and it's being received by, by their readers in completely different ways. So if you see an illustrated novel, do you, does that then make you picture the characters in the way that they're drawn or do you just discount it kind of completely 
Well, it happens so rarely that it's hard to answer that picture, but I would say I'm relatively uncorrupted by filmic versions of novels. I mean, I would say you're relatively uncorrupted in every possible way, my darling. (laughs) Um, that's very nice. Well, is that nice? Yes, it's nice. It is. No, I, I mean, I, somebody told me the other day I was a, too much of a good girl. Oh, well, that's bullshit. No, yeah. you have okay. A we're going really off tangent here. I'm so sorry. Okay, <laughs> I'm just enjoying having a conversation with a human being. I, I know. Well, it's I, it's been fun for me too. I'm not sure <laughs> if it will be fun for our listeners, but okay. So I'm gonna ask you one question. Hit me. Should we bring illustrations back to novels? I would say case by case basis. Okay. But yeah, why not? Yeah. But a case by case. I don't think you should be, I don't think like the publishing industry should ever be prescriptive about anything to do with form. I don't think it's helpful. And I, I don't think it's fair on readers or writers. Well, that's not very interesting, is it? No. (laughs) You have to be more polemic. Okay. Right. More polemic. Um, No, no, fuck it. No, no fucking pictures in my fucking books. I've grown out of it. Yeah. Okay. So I was, I was interested to see how many sort of think pieces there were about this and all of them said why aren't there more illustrations in novels but interestingly when I really thought about it I thought do you know what I don't really care for illustrations in novels Mm. and I don't feel the need for them now there is a notable exception which has to do with my recommendations so maybe we should move to our recommendations um, of illustrated novels and my my notable exception is um books by the folio society who i think are amazing and i think some of the books that you were mentioning like the master and the margarita that you've come across i i think that was probably a folio mm, society yeah, edition you're probably right. um so so what they do is they reissue classic novels but illustrated by sort of prominent well-known contemporary illustrators um and they they just make these beautiful beautiful hardback books and you can subscribe to them and they've they've done a lot of different additions to things but every time I come across them especially if I know the novel it's just such a delight to sort of page through them and see how various scenes and characters have been interpreted and often in quite um non-figurative ways so you know I I think what maybe what's most interesting is seeing the ways in which artists can interpret novels like Mrs. Dalloway or Joyce's Ulysses was one that particularly impressed me, um, that don't necessarily lend themselves to sort of Dickensian scenes in the same way. Um, and I think one of our mutual friends' dads is a subscriber. And I went, I remember I went to his house and he had this library filled with Folio Society books. Yeah, all his dad. Um, and it was, it was like, I spent an hour just paging through all of those books. It was amazing. Well, that's also a wonderful repost for anyone who's like, oh, is the book really dying? You know, like these ways of publishing books that are art objects in Mm. themselves that incorporate illustration and also texture because they are the beautiful those photos inside the books heavy gorgeous like fabric covered you know the whole like it's a very tactile experience which makes sense that you would then have stuff in there that's going to appeal to senses other than you know just your imagination from words like yeah and it's funny because I wouldn't necessarily want to read that version of the novel you know hardback books are so heavy (laughs) (laughs) and especially the more beautiful something is the less you want to mess it up yeah. Um, so yeah, I would yeah. I would want to read like a crappy paperback version and then maybe buy a Folio Society book and have it on my shelf and, and leaf through, through it. And leaf through it every now and again. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. But, um, but shout out to them. Yeah. I think they're doing good work. Good on you guys. Okay. Keep it up. Yeah. What's, what's your recommendation? Mine is a 
very different. Um, it's it's a little memoir, novella length piece called Toxique by Françoise Sagan, and it's I don't think it exists in, in um, translation, but what is amazing about it is that actually you don't really need any French at all, really. GCSE level French would definitely get you through um, because the illustrations do so much of the work. It's this wonderful piece. So Françoise Sagan became um, very well known. I think she was only 18 or 19 when she wrote her first book, Bonjour Tristesse, which I've recommended on the show before and which has been translated. Um, and this book is a memoir, a diary essentially that she wrote in 1957 and she'd had this terrible car accident and had had to take very high level doses of morphine for about three months and became completely addicted. So had to go and detox. And it's the experience of her detoxification. Um, and she, it was published after, the t after you know, a few years after it happened. I think it was published in the 60s for the first time. The illustrations are by um, a guy called Bernard Buffet. Bernard Buffet, maybe, I don't know. Um, and his style is quite like... Uh, it's a bit Egon Schiele, a bit Tracy Emin, if you can picture that kind of mm, scratchy, yeah. um, linear, and they, they kind of sprawl across the pages and, and then her text is split up into small kind of paragraphs. And um, it's really, it's a really great example of when the visuals and the text combine to give you an incredibly visceral experience of what the character's going through. Like the, the drawings make you feel like you're detoxing from opiates um they're angular and edgy and then her text is fragmented because you know it reflects her mental state which is evidently struggle struggling and in pain um but it's yeah it's incredibly beautiful and at the beginning you open it and it's just a photocopy of the first page of the actual journal that she wrote so it's doing a lot of stuff to do with layers of reality and unreality and it's a it's a fictionalized memoir evidently but it, it's also it's a it describes a really raw um, and powerful experience. So yeah, I'd, I'd recommend it really highly. I also, I just think she's genuinely a very beautiful writer and her, mm. her prose is lovely. Um, but I, I, I have another, can I do another really small, quick one? Okay, fine. Oh, she doesn't look happy. <laughs> um, I just want to give a shout out to Frida Kahlo's Incredible Diary, which is my favorite, um, probably really ever illustrated book because it's just a photocopy. It's a color facsimile of her actual diary. And it is absolutely extraordinary. Um, and a, like a beautiful, beautiful document. So you should, all rush okay. out and get it those are two good recommendations Thanks, and my you've love. brought the sagan i did i'm gonna i'm gonna give so it to beautiful. you I want, yeah oh, i want you to you. i wait no no you're not to keep oh. <laughs> <laughs> no way no just i i want you to look at it on air so that everyone can hear you oh. appreciate Ooh. it you see like a show and tell um well if it's i can't keep it then i'm no, not i'm not, not agreeing to that bargain <laughs> she's not in she's not into it <laughs> um no it is it's a beautiful book it's a really yeah uh, it's published by um uh, stock. Well, it's like one of those uh, Edition stock. Yeah, yeah. Um, de yeah. Which the France is so good. The French publishing industry does some amazing things to Great. do with like you know, uh, books can't be that expensive. Paperbacks. So there's a cap on how much you can charge, which is brilliant. Cause it just means reading is like in the public domain in a different way. That's a whole other conversation. Brilliant. Can't so, stop talking. Don't make me go back to my we, fucking hole. We are going to be back in a little bit with our book recommendations. Yeah. 
This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back with Octavia Bright and Sarah Baum, and we are going to give our book recommendations. So, Octavia, do you want to start us off? Yes, please. Thrilled to. Great. Um, okay, I'm going to start with full disclosure, which is that I'm actually not even halfway through this book yet, um, because I have been having to read only stuff that I've written myself, which is a torturous experience. Um, but when I have had the chance to stop and read, I've been really enjoying this book a lot. Um, and so I feel confident recommending it, even though I'm only 40 pages in. Um, and also it has the wonderful Maggie Nelson seal of approval stamped across the front of it. So, you know, that's got to count for something. Um, it's called Black Wave and it's by an American writer called Michelle T published by And Other Stories this year. So it's completely fresh off the press, basically. Um, and actually we were trying to get Michelle to come on the show for an interview and mm. sadly, very sadly, our schedules just couldn't quite um, coincide before she had to go back to the States. Um, but so I'm going to talk about it here also because I just think she's a great writer. Um, so it's basically a queer feminist post-apocalyptic novel slash fictionalized memoir described by the New York Times as part fictional, part fictionalized memoir, part apocalyptic fantasia. Um, and it's very wry and witty and full of acerbic observations about millennials. Well, they're not actually millennials because it's set in the 90s, but, you know, like young, disaffected people trying to work their way through a whole bunch of shit. Um, but it's also really, really imaginative. And it made me realize I haven't read anything for, for a long time, actually, that creates its own world um, like that, that is it's not our world, you know? And in the in the context of the novel, the, the world is about to end. So they know that the world is ending in one year. Um, so it's this completely divergent future that's not impossible to imagine happening and is not a hundred miles away from how a lot of us feel about the political situation globally at the moment. So it's a, it's a great, it's kind of instigating this really good dialogue between like the world in the book and the real world. Um, and at the moment, the first half is set in San Francisco and then they go to LA, which I haven't got to yet. And interestingly and serendipitously, it has pictures in it, Carrie. Oh, great. Only two. Um, and so you open the front cover and then there's a picture with San Francisco stamped across that's just two people's asses, like two people mooning, two people's bottoms, glutes. I hate the word bottom. Do you? So British. It's yeah. so British, isn't it? A bottom. <laughs> asses. Two asses. Two nice asses. One masculine, one feminine. I would guess from um, the perspective and then there's a picture of the desert for the Los Angeles section um, I'm going to put some pictures of this and Toxique on our Instagram listeners dear listeners so if you want to see what we're talking about you can check them out um, but yeah I think it's a great book so far and like I said I, I, there's more to read and I'm looking forward to it I would say it's a little bit Nelzink-esque totally different voice but there's a similar energy to it and a similar sarcasm um, but like jet like kind sarcasm with her characters uh, so yeah go yeah. for it Michelle T you know it's funny um, we've got to the point where including illustrations in a novel is of, often the realm of uh, experimental fiction right rather than bog standard sort of realist fiction which is what it used to be yeah totally weird yeah um, so I am going to recommend a book I am reading right now. Um, haven't quite finished it, but again, really, really enjoying it. And I can't really see how I would start to hate it in the last hundred pages. So I'm just, just <laughs> going, going ahead. That would be a shame, really. Um, it's called The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. 
it's been getting a lot of love from critics and prize givers. Um, so probably everyone's heard of it and may have even read it by now. Yeah, I haven't heard of it or read it. Oh, well, you have been in a hole. But it's, <laughs> it's pretty popular. Is it? Um, especially in America. Maybe less so here. Um, so the central conceit of the novel is that the Underground Railroad, which was, of course, a network of safe houses and allies that helped runaway slaves escape from the American South to the North, is actually an... An, a, a railroad underground. Wow. Um, so there are different stops in different states and you get on this, you know, sort of broken down car and, and take it Man. to a different state. Um, besides that, though, everything is based on a historical portrait of slavery and what it was like for these runaway slaves. Um, and the book follows Cora, um, who is a young woman who escapes from plantation in Georgia and has to make her way north and goes from state to state and in each state encounters a different world which is sort of menacing in its own way um it's really compelling it's so well written the voice is amazing and and cora is this wonderfully spirited central character but i i think what is most important about it maybe is that it does what i think all the best historical fiction has to do which is um makes history come alive and specifically in this case um the realities of slavery which are utterly horrifying um real in a way that they never have for me even though i studied it every year in school and even though i've read history books about it just immersing myself in the in the world of this novel makes it so horrifyingly real vivid yeah. and vivid so important um, and that just for me you know we've been talking about especially after the election of Trump, you know, what can art do? What can novels do? And I think this is something that they do very well. I just got goosebumps as you said that. Because it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I just think it's so important when we have a white supremacist or at least an, a white supremacist apologist in the Oval Office. We need to understand yeah, let alone where the, this is all coming yeah, from. Totally. And, and um, so I'd really heartily recommend it. Yeah, it sounds great. Can we send some copies to Trump and Steve Bannon with turds? Trump doesn't read. Oh, fuck. Yeah, I know. And when we spoke to Sarah, she told us about her book recommendation too. Yes, I've brought in um, A Goat Song by Dermot Healy. Um, Healy was uh, an Irish writer, and but it's kind of, I think, an unsung masterpiece of Irish writing. Um, and I'm much more interested in sort of the rural Irish writers, John McGarren, William Trevor, who died recently, um, John B. Keane. And Dermot Healy is definitely a part of that tradition. Um, he died in 2014 and I had him briefly in college. He came in to teach a workshop and he was this mad guy with like grey hair, long grey beard. And he spoke with such passion about everything. He sort of spoke as if he was breathing fire. And um, A Goat Song is, uh, it's a love story. I'm the last person in the world to, to recommend a, a love story. I'm completely unromantic, but it's uh, an extremely tempestuous tempestuous love story um a fisherman and an actress and this wonderful setting of um bell mullet the mullet Penin peninsula which is on the west coast of ireland and um it's so it's sort of so full of obsession and tenderness and um but completely unsentimental um and not enough people have read it i think um it, it is as i say one of the masterpieces of irish fiction a goat song um oh god i can't remember what it refers to um, but the goat, I think that's it. When goats are separated, one of them, the, the male goat, like, laments horribly, um, makes this horrible keening noise for the female goat. And that's where, where the title comes from, and it's just perfect title for, for what happens. 
That sounds wonderful. I've heard of Dermot Healy, but I've never read anything by him. And I, I'm spurned to do so. Oh, well, do, do. <laughs> That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Sarah Baum and Eddie Knight for production and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and on nts.live. You can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Um, and please like, like us because we like you. We do like you. We'll be back next month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.